you know, like a Romal and shaking your hand and saying, Maranatha, Romal. And what the word means, it can mean one of two things. It's either a prayer to Jesus and a, a cry of the heart to say, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha can mean that, or it can mean Jesus is coming. <laughs> what an encouraging greeting. Uh, if someone's having a rough day <laughs> or a bad week or a bad month or a bad life <laughs> and to shake that person's hand and say, Jesus is coming. What an encouraging way. I mean, no matter what kind of day you're having up till that point, that'll be encouraging. If you know what it means that Jesus is coming. And... Uh, one of the things I feel the Lord wants to remind us of this morning is the fact that we are living for that day when he comes. It's interesting, we've just um, done our New Believers course or our Foundations course, um, and there's certain topics we cover in New Believers course, but it's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 6, it gives you a little outline for what should be in your Foundations course. Now, just clear your mind of anything you think the foundations of the faith should be, and we'll put this scripture up and see if it aligns with your expectation. There's one surprise teaching in here that I don't think we always associate with being one of the foundations of the faith. See if you can, let's see if you can spot it. Have you got it? Hebrews chapter 6. Um, let us, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. Remember, elementary school is the basic school, right? Foundation phase or whatever. Elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance, okay? Repentance, that's a pretty easy one to guess. But definitely a foundation of the faith from acts that lead to death and of faith, okay? Repent, believe, faith. That's familiar territory here. Instruction about baptisms, that's definitely in any new believer course. Baptisms, laying on of hands, here we go. This is an interesting one. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Possibly, maybe not, depending on how well you've been discipled, that could be a left, a left field introduction into your New Believers course, don't you think? So what I want to ask this morning is, if that's a foundational teaching that every Christian should have well laid in their understanding of the kingdom, is it for you? Resurrection and eternal judgment. It's one of the foundational teachings. And I, I want to um, put it to you. I think those two topics, resurrection and eternal judgment, will probably shape your life more than anything else. And that's just not my own hypothesis. In the, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, there's this incredible chapter we refer to it as the Hall of Faith, <laughs> like the Hall of Fame, but it's people who are famous for their faith, so we call it the Hall of, of Faith, um, and it gives all these stories of the heroes of our faith, and how they lived, and how they died, and how they triumphed, and how they were sometimes um, killed for their faith. It's an incredible chapter because it tells stories of people who we would perceive as really winning in life maybe being used by God to perform miracles. And then people who we would maybe pursue, perceive as really losing in life, like dying um, and not receiving back 
your dead from, uh, from the dead. Um, but there's this um, common theme that runs through all the stories, which is this. They were all living for the heavenly city. They were all living for that life, that city, that home. All of them. That was the one thing that they had in common. And so in the early church, a revelation and an understanding of the resurrection from the dead and the life thereafter shaped the church in profound ways. And one of the things I I felt the Lord challenging me on is, does it shape us in the same way? And if if I'm honest, I think it probably doesn't shape us as much as it should. And Paul said this, he said, if the resurrection is not true, that we Christians are to be pitied more than anyone in the world today. That's a profound thing to say. So here's the question. If the resurrection wasn't true, would you, how profoundly different would your life look? And I would put it to you that for many Christians, their life wouldn't actually look that different if the resurrection wasn't true. And that's, and that's a sobering thought, because it should. Uh, the Bible actually teaches us um, that wisdom can be found at a funeral. One of the Proverbs, I don't have it right now, but it says you can learn more wisdom at a funeral than anywhere else. And that's because a funeral teaches you about how life, how brief life is, how short life is. Not sure if you've ever had a near-death experience. I remember almost getting killed by a taxi when I was riding my motorbike and he hit me very, very hard and I almost died. And I was house-sitting at the time. So I went home that night and I went to an empty house and was reflecting on my life. (laughs) I was about 24 years old and I had a little midlife crisis as I was thinking, I'd always said, you know, Lord, you can take me now. It's, I'm good to go. I, I've seen everything I need to see here. But that night, I remember thinking, actually, actually, Lord, I, t- I take that back. I... <laughs> <laughs> These are some of the things the Bible says about life on earth. It says that your life, my life, is like a shadow. How permanent is a shadow? by one of the most impermanent things you can find. It says your life is like a wind. Your life is like grass. Your life is like smoke. Maybe you can put that one up. James 4, verse 14. You got that one. Maybe was complaining about too many scriptures this morning. Sorry. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We get a lot of mist here in Cape Town. How long does the mist last? Until the sun comes up, basically. When the sun starts shining brightly, then the mist goes. Your life, my life, is like mist. I say these things because it's true, but I don't know how often we think of our lives like that. The Bible says your life is like a flower. Flower you buy for a friend for their gift, but you worry that it's not even going to last until you give it to them. True? 
you nurse that thing, put some water, put some of those nutrients in there, and you just hope that that flower goes the distance for like two days. The Bible says your life is like a flower. It blooms, it's beautiful, has its moment, and then it dies. And so the church has always seen our life here on earth as a short stop before the real event, which is eternity with Christ. The question is, do we think of our, our lives like that? In uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, uh, it talks about all these people of faith were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They admitted that they were aliens and strangers here on earth. What an encouraging message for you this morning. You are an alien. Aliens are real. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. This is my favorite part. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly country. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You know, the Bible says that God has been and is preparing a place for us, a city for us, a home for us. Think of that. Right now, as we are sitting here, God is busy preparing a city for us to live. Did you know that? If it took him seven days to create this earth, imagine what that city is going to be like. He is preparing a home for us. But the Bible says that we are strangers and aliens, or we don't really use that word anymore, <clears throat> exiles or refugees. We are refugees here on this earth. Did you know that? There are people who live in uh, refugee camps. When you come up to that person and you speak to them, how do they think about the place where they are living? It's a temporary stop. They are still awaiting the opportunity to go home. That is how we are to think of this life. We live here for now. But it's not the end. We are on a journey to our home. And our home is heaven. The Bible says we are citizens of heaven. On your spiritual passport, doesn't say South Africa. It says heaven. Heaven is your home. You have a king in your country whose name is Jesus, and you are a citizen of his city. Amen? So we're going to speak about, well, I've already started. It's not like I'm introducing my topic still, but I want to introduce um, judgment and um, resurrection and um, the future, but I want to start with the first question which many people ask me about, but the Bible speaks a lot about, which is what actually happens after you die, 
Um, it either happens when you die or it happens when Jesus returns. Whichever happens first. Right? Same destination. Whether you die or Jesus returns, you go to the same destination. So it's either one or the other. What exactly happens when you die or when Jesus returns? Um, Matthew chapter 25, we're going to read, um, When the Son of Man comes. Son of Man is a reference to Jesus. When Jesus returns, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And I want to just take out from this passage, we'll continue with this passage, but I want to just pause and just take out bits from it as we go. Because each bit of this passage is quite profound and, and tells us a lot about what we can expect in, in the future. The first thing that I'll pick out here is that when Jesus comes again, judgment follows immediately afterwards. He is coming back to judge. That will be the purpose of his second visit. So immediately after he comes back, there's going to be a gathering of all the nations together in front of Christ. And not only those who are living, but those who are dead will be raised and gathered. Both the living and the dead will be gathered before Christ at the same time to face judgment. That is the teaching of Scripture. And the Bible says that they will be judged according to what they've done, whether for good, for reward, or for bad, which is for punishment. I'm going to read on Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. It's the very next verse. Um, then the king will say to those on his right, so the right side of Jesus is the sheep, the good guys. Hopefully us. Hopefully by the end of the end of the service it will be all of us. To those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom. Listen to this: the kingdom prepared for you for how long? Since the creation of the world, Jesus has been preparing this home for us. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. This is a, an interesting passage for us to understand and comprehend and to apply for our own lives. Jesus is talking about those who are coming with him to heaven and why they are coming with him to heaven. Now the thing that I need to explain here is how is it that we are saved? What is it exactly that grants us access into heaven? And every good Protestant Christian should answer that question that we are saved by grace, saved by faith, um, Saved by grace through faith? True? 
So then the question is, so then why is he talking about what you did and what you didn't do? And, and, the, and the reason why he's speaking like this is because Jesus always said that you judge a tree not by what the tree says it is, but by the fruit of the tree. Amen? So when we are saved by grace, through faith, God transforms us and he makes us a new creation. You were not holy, but he makes us holy by Christ. He gives us a new nature. So if you were a lemon tree before, trying to make lemonade, best of a bad situation, he comes into your life and, he, and you are born again. And he changes your nature. He puts his Holy Spirit in you so that you have new desires. So that you now love Jesus, whereas before you felt scared of him. So that you now want to please Jesus, whereas before all you wanted to do was just please yourself. And so he makes you holy, he makes you a new creation, and in the rest of your life you live out what he has now made you to be. Amen? If you do not go on to bear good fruit for the rest of your life, all that proves is that actually it was just a professional faith. It never actually became a reality in your life. And so the fruit of a renewed life is love. That's why, isn't it beautiful that Jesus talks about the Christian life in the terms of what you did for Christ because of your love for Christ, but it expresses itself in how you love people. Beautiful, eh? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. In that order. And so, Galatians says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. A Christian life looks like a life lived from a place of love for God, which is expressed in love for people. And he says, specifically in this passage, I don't think it's the only thing he talks about, but in this passage he says, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. So when you hosted people in your home, you hosted Jesus in your home. But what, what's important is not only that you do it, but why you do it. It's because I love Jesus, not out of a sense of religious duty, not out of ticking boxes trying to earn my way to heaven. I'm already saved, but I express my faith in love. And it's interesting that in this particular judgment that Jesus is referring to, there are many who say, but Lord, when did we see you hungry and we didn't feed you? When did we see you thirsty and we didn't give you something to drink? And he says, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do for me. So he's actually talking about, in that instance, he's actually talking about fake Christians. Christians who once said a prayer and thought that they had their ticket to heaven, but that that internal work of the Holy Spirit never actually changed and transformed them into the image of Christ. Does that make sense? Chapter 25, verse verse 41. Then he gets to the the scary side of, of the judgment. He's finished talking to the Christians now. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, 
prepared for the devil and his angels. I'm going to just read one more verse after this and then I'll unpack it a bit. Verse 45 and verse 46. He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What's interesting in that first verse, it says, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil. Hell is a place which God originally intended as a place for the devil and the demons to go and be punished for all of eternity. But man, in its rebellion against God, has actually um, joined themselves with Satan's camp, and so therefore suffers the same fate as Satan. But that wasn't God's original intention. His intention was for us to live with him, and to be in fellowship with him, and relationship with him. But it also says that it's a place for um, punishment. Um, which is a very sobering um, reality and truth that Jesus is communicating. What's interesting is that Jesus taught more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. Did you know that? In the Old Testament, gives us very vague references of the afterlife. People were actually scared of the afterlife, even if they were Christians, because they just didn't know a lot about what actually happens after you die. They knew there was an afterlife, but Jesus came and brought clarity about what hell is and how you can avoid going there, more so than anyone else. And, and when Jesus spoke about hell, he actually often referenced a literal place as an analogy of what hell would be like. Did you know that? The word he used for hell very often was, a, was the word Gehenna. Um, so, for example, um, in verse chapter, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he says, this is a warning now to Christians. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And the word there for hell is Gehenna. This is a warning to Christians to say, if there's something in your life that's leading you to sin, it's not worth it. However precious that thing may be to you, it is not worth it. It may give you temporary pleasure, but it's going to result in eternal suffering and judgment. If there's something that's going to lead you consistently astray from God, be ruthless, cut it out. But the word here he's using for hell is Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was actually a valley just outside of Jerusalem. And uh, that valley had gotten a reputation for a place that has represented wickedness and evil and witchcraft and, and everything that is um, disgusting. So, for example, that valley when Israel was um, turning to other gods was often used for child sacrifice. One of the false religions or idolatrous worship that happened during the time of Israel is that people would offer their own children as, as a sacrifice to false gods. And they would often do it in that valley because it was out of the way, it was inconspicuous. People wouldn't catch you doing it, because it was illegal to do that in Israel. And so this valley developed a reputation for what's evil and what's wicked, um, to, to the point that in the time of Josiah, when there was a reformation, he actually banned everyone and anyone from even going there. 
It was just illegal to even go there because if you went there, you were obviously up to no good. So if, if we just catch you there, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and so because it was a place that was banned from anyone actually going there, they began to use it as a rubbish dump because it was conveniently situated at the edge of the city, out of the way. People would just chuck their rubbish down there. And one of the things that would happen is if a criminal died and he, he had a very bad reputation and the family wasn't there to come and take care of his body and no one really wanted to celebrate his life, they would just chuck him in the rubbish dump where he would have an unmarked, unmarked grave. And so Gehenna was a very convenient reference for Jesus at, in his time to use it as a reference of what hell would be like because it was a rubbish dump. There were obviously worms eating everything that was rotting there fires that were burning, like a normal rubbish dump. And so Jesus used this place as a reference for what hell would be like. And it gives us an indication of why God even sends people to hell in the first place. But hell doesn't really make sense unless you understand what God plans to do when he comes. So let me go on to the resurrection. Because did you know that when Jesus has judged the world, there is a a resurrection. (laughs) There will be a resurrection. And we will actually be made new. Our bodies, which are now subject to decay and atrophy, will be made new. We will receive glorified bodies. Amen. Amen. If you're 24, that means nothing to you. But if you pass, but if you pass 30 odd, that is really something to be celebrated. Somebody was making fun of me right now in worship because I was stretching my back out because feeling a bit tender this morning. We will receive resurrection bodies like the one Jesus received after he was raised from the dead. Amen. That's beautiful. That's, that is something to be celebrated. But not only will we be made new, The earth itself, this earth, will be made new. Did you know that? This earth is subject to atrophy. It is decaying. But it's going to be made new as well. And so let's read about it. In uh, 2 Peter, chapter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. That's the sky, by the way. took me too many years to figure that one out. I won't say when, but not so long ago. The sky will disappear with a roar. Not in worship this morning, no, Cam. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless. A new heaven, a new earth, a new sky. I need to make the point again. And a new earth, a home 
of righteousness. So because sin was introduced into the world through our rebellion, everything that was tainted by sin is now decaying and corrupted. And it's not the way that it should be. The world and the life that we live now is full of pain and death and sickness and tragedy. That was all caused by sin. We are suffering the effects of sin. But when we are born again, God begins the process in you and me of making us new. And when Jesus comes, the Bible says we will be perfect as he is perfect. In other words, we are being made perfect right now. We are being sanctified. But when we see Christ, that process will be brought to completion. We'll never sin again. What a relief that will be. After all the wrestling and the fighting and putting sin to death and guarding our thoughts and looking to Jesus, we'll never have to fight another day with sin. We will be made perfect. And this earth will be made new and everything that is corrupting this earth will be removed. And all those who love sin more than they love Christ All those that refuse the offer of salvation, they say, no, I love sin more than I love Jesus. I'm happy with the way that I am. And have rejected the salvation of God. God will give them over to the choice that they've made. He will give them over to sin. But in his new earth, he cannot have anyone that loves sin. Because why? It's easy to figure this one out. We'll just make that new earth the same as this one. True? And that would defeat the whole point of having heaven. Imagine heaven being corrupted just the same way that this earth was. And so Jesus will redeem all of those who have received his salvation, who are being made new, who are called by his name, who have been redeemed, and he will populate the new earth, which will be called the home of righteousness. It will be a place of peace and a place of joy because all things will be made new. But all those who have rejected the salvation of Christ, who have loved their sin more than the free gift that was offered through Christ, the free gift of salvation, those who have rejected Christ will be dispatched with those who have rebelled against Jesus, namely the devil and his angels, and they will be taken to hell. And so it, 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 it accentuates the importance and the gravity of the opportunity that we have in this life to be made new, to accept the free gift of salvation through Christ so that God can begin his work in us. Amen? And so heaven will be heaven because God will be with us. Here's something that I also realized very late in the game. The new earth will be heaven. You probably all know that, so I'm, I'm <clears throat> probably doesn't even need to be saying. Heaven, by definition, is the place where God lives. True? So when God comes to live on earth, that's heaven. Make sense? Okay, move on. So, heaven is the place where we are rewarded for our faithful, trusting, and following, and obeying Jesus. The first reward that we get when we get to heaven and the greatest reward, the thing that makes heaven heavenly is Christ himself. Jesus himself is the reward 
that dwarfs all the other rewards. And I, I want to just read this passage, which I think illustrates this point well. Revelation chapter 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to how beautiful is this, now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Isn't that beautiful? On the new earth, we will live with God. He will be in the same city that we're living in. In fact, he will be the daylight. The Bible says there won't be any sun. God himself will be the light by which we live. We will see the radiance of his glory every morning when we wake up. How crazy, how beautiful will that be? No longer will you need faith. You just open your eyes. And there he is. And so, the reward that our souls truly long for is to be with Christ. As a bride longs for that day, when she can be with her husband. We are that bride. And the Bible describes that day as a wedding day, as a wedding feast. And so I would go so far as to say this. If Christ himself isn't the reward that you're looking for in heaven, you probably won't go there. I know that's a strong language, but my point is this. Jesus is our reward. He is our love. We're not just looking to go looking forward to going to the perfect city where there's no crime. That is true, but that's not why we're looking forward. That's one very great side benefit. The reason why we're looking going to, to live in that city is because Jesus himself will live there. And he is the desire of our hearts. He is the love and the longing of our hearts. Having said that, there will be degrees of rewards that we get for the way we've lived in this life. There will. There are degrees of reward in heaven and there are degrees of punishment in hell. In Matthew chapter 6 alone, I'll just mention, Jesus mentioned there will be rewards for how we give to those in need. There will be rewards for how we pray. There will be rewards for how we fast. The Bible talks about there being a special reward for those who die because of their faith, martyrs. There will be a special reward for people who win souls for Christ. There will be special rewards for those who have endured testings and trials, those who have sacrificed for Christ, this side of eternity. Jesus said, everything you've sacrificed in his name, you will receive back and more. I don't know how God rewards people in heaven. All I know is, I've experienced some of his blessings in this life and he really is very good at blessing people. And so I don't know what those rewards are, but Jesus said that I shouldn't store up treasures in this life. I should store up my treasures in heaven. The Bible also says that there are different degrees of punishment in hell. I'm not going to go into into depth in that, but essentially, um, according to Revelation, So if you know the things that displease God and you do them anyway, you'll be punished more severely than if you did it even though you didn't know in hell. Also certain sins are more uh, heinous 
to God than others. And so I want to end by applying this. What difference does this make for your life? What difference does this make for my life? Well, it should make all the difference in every area of my life. In every area of my life. Paul Peter already mentioned that considering how things are going to end, let's live holy and blameless lives. And this has got to do with identity. We live in a generation that's searching for identity in lots of different things. The most defining attribute of who you are and who I am is this. I'm a citizen of heaven. Heaven is my home. We are called holy people. Do you know what holy means? Holy means set apart for God. That is what holiness means. We are set apart for God. We've been pledged to Christ. And so every single day, in every attribute of my life, in every thought, prayer, desire, what defines me is I have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. I belong to him. I am separate. We are in, the, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. My, my home is in heaven. And we will make many sacrifices. Pleasures that we wanted to have that we won't have. Things we want to do that we won't do. Things we want to say that we won't say. Because I'm not living for this life. I'm, looking, I'm living for that day. And also because of who I am. I'm God's son. You are God's daughter. But it impacts everything. It impacts your relationships. It impacts those trivial, petty fallouts that we have with one another. Then we think, no, no. We are going to spend eternity together. We better sort this out. Yes, I can leave this church and go to another church, but guess what? When you get to heaven, we might be in the same door. <laughs> Imagine. Oh, wow, it's you. So good to see you. <laughs> I was hoping you weren't, were going to be here. <laughs> Those things which we find so hard to forgive. In the light of eternity, in the light of what Christ has done for me, we can't afford to hold on to unforgiveness. In fact, Jesus said, you might not even get there. He said, if you don't forgive your brother, I'm not going to forgive you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. After all we've done to harm Jesus, he forgave us. How can we not forgive our brothers? In our relationships with our husband or our girlfriend or whatever, we walk those relationships out with holiness and purity. Why? Because that's who I am. I'm holy. I belong to him. I'm going to live in the home of righteousness. And so I'm being made new right now. And I live my life to honor him and glorify him in every aspect of my life. Not to please men, but to, but to honor God. How I spend my money, how I spend my time, the kind of things I give myself to. How I raise my kids. Just to touch on that, you know, you know, we can either raise our kids to excel in this life or to excel in the next. What's more important? I know a lot of you don't have kids, but true? What's more important, that my kid excels at cricket and goes to the best school in the country so that he can set himself up for success in the business place, the marketplace? 
or that I raise my child to stand for Christ no matter what his friends say? What's more important? Where is he going to spend his whole eternity? It's not here in South Africa. It's with Christ. And to model that and to teach our children. Material success can be a blessing, but it's not the end goal here on earth. In, my market, in the marketplace, why do I go to work every day? Is it so I can climb the corporate ladder and be a big success? Or is it because God's put me there to be a light, to be a witness of another world that is to come? That people would see in my life that I love Jesus more than I love anything on this earth. Amen? We can quickly get caught up into the things that people in this world love and forget that our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. And so Jesus said, because of the multiplication of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. My encouragement to you, Jesus said, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Sometimes we lose sight of eternity. Maybe even this week, you lost sight of eternity and you grew discouraged. My encouragement to you is persevere. Persevere till the end. This life is a shadow. It's a mist. It's gone before you know it. Don't lose sight of eternity. Don't get discouraged. Don't start your race well and end in carnality. Don't allow the the allurements of this life to steal your love for Jesus. I feel like this morning the danger is you hear this word and you feel condemned and you run away from God. The Bible says his mercies are new. How often? Every morning. Still morning, right? Just. <laughs> Can squeak in some repentance this morning. If you feel like, man, Luke, as you're speaking, the Holy Spirit is convicting me. Man, I, have, I haven't been living for eternity. I've got good news. His mercy is new every morning. There's an opportunity right now to say, God, I'm sorry. I lost sight of what's important. I'm re-devoting my life to you. I want to be set apart. I want to be a citizen of heaven. I want to live like it now. Let's close eyes. God, it's exciting and it's sobering to think,